Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and this is Rules-Based Disorder here at Call-In, exclusively here at Call-In. And I want to invite anyone who's listening to this show, please feel free to go ahead and you can call in. And I'm going to take questions and respond to any questions, political questions people may have. This is my second episode. I just did a first episode with Danny Haifong, who's a friend of the show, a great journalist, and we talked about the new Cold War, we talked about U.S. policy against China, we talked about the threats against the Solomon Islands over it signing a security agreement with China, and of course the hypocrisy given the war in Ukraine, in which the U.S. constantly insists that Ukraine has it must have the right to join NATO, this offensive military alliance that destroyed Libya, that destroyed Yugoslavia, that was involved in the 20-year military occupation of Afghanistan. So today I'm going to invite people to go ahead and and you please feel free to ask questions here. We have a few listeners and I'm going to see anyone who wants to join. I think, uh, let me... Uh, I think I can invite people here. I'm still new to this app, so uh, I think anyone should be able to anyone should be able to call in. So please feel free to call in if you have any questions here. There we go. Here's Hussein. Uh, this is my and uh, let me see. I think take next caller. All right, go ahead. I think you should be good to go here, Hussein. Hey Ben, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for calling in. Um, still trying to figure out this app a little bit, but it's very cool to have the, the option to chat with you all. Yeah, it is really cool. I've been listening to you for a, quite a while, and it is really good to talk to you. Um, I just heard uh, a couple of days ago an uh, episode you had with uh, Abby Martin, uh, Abby Martin Empire Files. That was really good. You broke down everything and connected like South America and Palestine and everything really good. And uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about Palestine. Do you see, like, I just heard Assad Abu Khalil give a speech recently and he, he says that he sees the direction of like the youth here in the U.S., as uh, being more understanding of, uh, of the situation in Palestine and being more pro-Palestine. But at the same time, there is, uh, you know, the lobbies, the, you know, Israeli lobbies are really strong and they do all kinds of lobbying and campaigning against anybody who speaks up for Palestine. I mean, we see so many examples of that. Where where do you see this going? Do you see, do you see, uh, you know, a pro-Palestine improvement in views in the world? What do you think? Yeah, great question, Hussein. Thanks for joining. I'm just gonna let's see. I can um, mute you here. Um, yeah, I think this is a great question, and I agree with uh, Professor Asad Abu Khalil. I think that he's right that the younger generation in the U.S tends to be much more sympathetic to Palestine and much more critical of apartheid Israel. I think there's a few reasons for that. One, I mean, it's become completely impossible to deny the criminality of the Israeli apartheid regime, the racism, which has become so blatant, which was directly incorporated into Israeli law by saying that if you're not Jewish, you're not a citizen. I mean, they recently passed the citizen law that just makes it any any liberal Zionist defender of apartheid Israel can't, they can no longer pretend like it's some great progressive project. But I also think there's another important factor, which is not necessarily a good thing, because it makes it a partisan issue in, in the sense of US partisan politics. And that is that Israel has become associated with Republicans with a capital R, right? We saw Donald Trump in particular, really embraced Israel. He and Benjamin Netanyahu were good friends. And we saw that that under Trump, uh, apartheid Israel opened this new illegal settlement in the occupied Golan Heights, which is which is a sovereign part of Syrian territory. And it's called Trump Heights. I mean, just laughably absurd. So 
Israel has become associated with the U.S. right wing and with the Republican Party. So I think, you know, in some ways that's kind of good, obviously, because it exposes how Israel has always been this right wing settler colonial project that is extremely anti-progressive, racist and all those things. But at the same time, I think the flip side of that is that it does associate this issue slightly with more with the Democratic Party, which is actually kind of funny because there's still so many Democrats who still support, support apartheid Israel. But, you know, the younger generation of like these kind of more progressive oriented people, you know, the squad, uh, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, there, there is now some criticism of Israel that is associated with the Democrats. And I do expect that to keep growing. And I expect that Israel is going to become a partisan issue. And and, and really for, I mean, for certainly all of my lifetime and for decades, going back really to the, the 67 Israeli occupation of the West Bank and also uh, what, what was part of the, the Sinai, I mean, Egyptian territory and, and now Gaza. That, that And then, of course, the Golan Heights in Syria. Going back to that Israeli occupation that continues to this day, the the pro-Israel groups in the U.S., you know, AIPAC and the other groups have they until recently they for those decades they tried to keep Israel support for apartheid Israel as a a nonpartisan issue in the context of U.S. politics. They tried to win just as much support from Republicans as they did Democrats, and there are some groups that still try to do that, you know, J Street, these liberal Zionist groups. But I think that's done. I mean, they they no longer have the same influence that they did among liberals in the U.S. And I think that, that Israel is just going to throw in its lot with the Republicans. And it's going to become another issue that's associated with Republicans, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, abortion rights and LGBT rights are associated with Democrats and anti-immigrant, anti-immigration, you know, racism and support for Israel will be associated with Republicans. Now, I don't mean that Democrats are all going to support Palestine because there's a, there's a, also an important distinction between supporting Palestinians and not supporting Israel, right? Because there are a lot of people in the U.S., you know, liberals who are critical of Israel, but they don't support Palestinian human rights. They certainly don't support the right of the Palestinian people to resist Israeli oppression, settler colonialism, and dispossession, as we see going on constantly in Jerusalem, with with Palestinians being kicked out of their homes that they've had for for generations. So, in short, I mean that's my analysis, and I could be wrong, but I actually think my I think the Biden administration has shown that even further because even though Netanyahu is no longer in power, I mean Naftali Bennett has not been able to win back a lot of liberal support. And certainly Joe Biden, I mean, the old school mainstream neoliberal Democrats, they all support Israel. But if you look at the way Israel is discussed among, you know, like the Trump types, the Republicans, they complain that the Democrats are not pro-Israel enough. So it's going to be become this battle and the Republicans are going to say that they're more pro-Israel. And and also, I think there's what's part of this as well, which is interesting is there's a split going on over Ukraine. And really quickly, I'll address this because, you know, a very valid criticism of Russian foreign policy is that Moscow is actually not in that, that's antagonistic to Israel. There are a lot of Russians living in Israel because during the first Cold War, the U.S. government pursued this policy of encouraging Soviet Jews to immigrate to Israel and the Soviet Union was a strong supporter of Palestinian liberation. The, the Soviet Union gave weapons to the Palestinian resistance, to the PLO, to the PFLP. And the, in the, the, the Soviet Union, although it made a huge mistake right at the beginning in recognizing Israel because they thought that it would be a force against British colonialism because Palestine had been a British colony. And unfortunately, they were very wrong about that. And the Soviets later, they learned that that was a mistake in support of Palestine. But well, the point I'm getting at is that th- throughout the first Cold War, the U.S. had this policy of weaponizing Jewish immigration out of the Soviet Union. And the journalist Yasha Levine has done good reporting on this. And basically, the narrative was that the Soviet Union is evil and, and anti-Semitic because it won't let its Jewish citizens move to Israel. So with all this pressure, eventually, 
in the 1980s, and then eventually after the overthrow of the Soviet Union, Russian Jews were allowed to make so-called Aliyah, to immigrate to Israel, and they form a significant electoral base inside Israel. And, you know, Avigdor Lieberman is of Russian Jewish descent and other politicians. And, I mean, again, a valid criticism of Russia, especially since the overthrow of the Soviet Union, is that because of that history, because there are so many Russian Jews in Israel, that Russia has had friendly relations with Israel. Although we've seen over Ukraine, what's good to see is that Russia has been finally criticizing Israel. And we see that Israel is sending military support to Ukraine, including Israel has been sending weapons to the Azov Battalion, which is a neo-Nazi death squad, which is part of the Ukrainian National Guard. So Israel, the so-called Jewish state, is is arming Nazis. And it, Russia has been publicly criticizing Israel. And Russia, in fact, they summoned the Israeli ambassador to, to criticize Israel to his face. So I, I think another element of this, which is interesting, is how internationally, I mean, Israel has always been, obviously, the 51st U.S. state, been a key part of the U.S. empire. At first, it was part of the British empire. Now it's part of the U.S. empire. But um, that's becoming even furtherly, it's becoming even further emphasized. It's become become harder to deny that as, you know, Israel is backing Ukraine in this war, this proxy war that we're seeing, which pushes Israel firmly into the Western camp. Whereas, you know, we see Russia and China and Iran integrating closer together. So that I think that also further, you know, backs up my analysis that Israel is going to become more and more a kind of partisan right wing issue and more more even more associated with the West than it already is, which I mean, Israel, again, is the 51st U.S. state. But uh, thank you for that, Hussein. Um, I'm going to jump to a question from Dylan here. Let me see if I can. Uh, uh, let me see. All right, here we go. So Dylan, go ahead. Hey, Dylan, uh, you're muted. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Oh, Ben, yeah, can I can hear, hear me? you. Sorry, I was muted too. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. No, it's all good. It's all good. Um, I don't really have a specific question. I just thought it was cool that you were doing this to, um, you know, be able to take questions. So thought thought I'd just ask something. Um, so I was wondering what you think is like the most underreported um, issue in like, you know, the anti-imperialist sphere. Because, um, I mean, I know you talk about all kinds of different countries and stuff. And I love when you talk about some out there countries. Like, I love like when you talk about like other countries in like Latin America um, that are not talked about very often. So what's um, an underreported story um, in anti-imperialist circles that you would like to talk about? Yeah, well, well, thanks, Dylan. It's a pleasure having you here. And yeah, of course. Um, sorry, uh, I'm still trying to figure this out. I think I kicked you. I think I accidentally kicked you out. But whatever. I was trying to mute you just because uh, of the echo. But anyway, um, I'm just, this is only my second episode. Hopefully, I'll get this um, ironed out in the future. And yeah, thanks for joining. Uh, my idea with 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 this show here at Colin is that I'm going to probably do one episode a week kind of focused on talking about a certain issue and then do another one where I just take questions from people. And it's really cool. I mean, uh, my friend Aaron Mate, a great journalist, he's been doing this for a few months now. Abby Martin recently joined and I was talking with Abby and she's like, yeah, this app's really cool. They call it a social podcasting app. And I do like the idea of being able to, you know, have all of you just call in and, and talk about stuff. So um, good question about underreported issues. I would say, honestly, one of the most underreported and most important issues going on in the world right now is this project of Eurasian integration. And, you know, what's funny is if you talk about this, there's this propaganda narrative that it's all Russian propaganda, even though, I mean, it, it actually is more influential because it involves China. I mean, Russia is, of course, a major political, economic, and military power, but China is the largest country on earth in terms of population, 1.4 billion people. According to GDP measurements in U.S. dollars, it has the second largest economy in the world. But actually, a, a better measurement would be PPP, purchasing power parity, 
because that's a measure based re- relatively based on the country's uh, sovereign currency. And according to PPP, China is actually the largest economy in the world, even larger than the U.S. economy. So uh, th- when we talk about Eurasian integration, there's this idea spread by the U.S. that anyone who talks about Eurasia uses that term Eurasia is a Russian propagandist or a Putinist, or even there's this nonsense of this idea of being a fascist Duganist, which is ridiculous nonsense, because, you know, people have been talking about Eurasian integration for many decades, even for centuries, but especially for decades, including a lot of leftist, you know, anti-imperialist progressive forces, not just these reactionary racists, you know, right-wingers like Dugan and others. So I think we, I think the left needs to talk more about this concept of Eurasian integration, because one, it's happening. I mean, it's undeniably happening. And two, because I think that it's going to fundamentally transform global politics. So when I say Eurasian integration, specifically, I'm talking about the creation of new institutions that directly integrate the Chinese economy with the Russian economy, with Iran, political organizations that integrate all of these countries in the region. So we saw some of this recently with the discussion over the military intervention by the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is the CSTO, which is a Russia-led defense alliance. And the CSTO intervened in Kazakhstan earlier this year because there was a, a color revolution attempt, a violent coup attempt, clearly backed by the Western powers. And the response was this military intervention that was requested by President Tokayev, who's the president of, of Kazakhstan. For context, Kazakhstan is an, an, an extremely important power in Central Asia, right next to both Russia and China. And Kazakhstan is was the country chosen by China to be part of the original Belt and Road Initiative when it was first la- launched. And when President Xi Jinping announced this in 2013, it was actually not called the Belt and Road Initiative originally. It was called the New Silk Road. And he announced it in, uh, in I believe it was Nazarbayev University in the capital of Kazakhstan. So, which is Astana, or they changed the name, but I think they're going back to Astana now. So, that, that Kazakhstan it plays in a very important role in this project of regional integration, which is clearly why there was this violent coup attempt. And there's allegations, there's these reports that Turkey sent some of these Salafi jihadist elements to to Kazakhstan to carry out the coup attempt, which is, of course, similar to the policy, the dirty war in Syria. Anyway, so there was this military intervention by the CSTO, and that was not only Russian. I mean, it was constantly in the Western media, there was this narrative that it was a Russian military intervention, but it was there was also Armenian troops and troops from multiple other countries that are part of the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which, yes, Russia, by being the largest country in it and the largest military power, it is the leader technically, but there are other countries. So that was an important development. And I mentioned that also because China, China, the Chinese government openly supported this CSTO intervention in Kazakhstan and China warned of color revolutions and warned of a, of a coup attempt in Kazakhstan aimed at destabilizing this attempt at integration. So that's an example of military integration between Russia, Central Asia, and even China. We've also seen that Russia and China have been jointly developing weapons technology. And in, in, uh, President Putin has said openly that they're working on advanced weapon systems, jointly producing them which is incredible because we haven't seen this level of Chinese and Russian integration until the 1950s, or rather since the 1950s. In the early 1950s, Mao Zedong, after the triumph of the Chinese revolution in 1949, he took a trip to Moscow. It was his first, it was his first and only trip ever abroad as, as leader. And he spent uh, several weeks in the Soviet Union and they signed a series of friendship agreements in the 1950s. There was military uh, partnerships and economic partnerships. And unfortunately, with the complex history of the, of the Sino-Soviet split by the 1960s, that all w- collapsed. But I mean, really, since the 1950s, we haven't seen this level of coordination between China and Russia. And considering China is the largest country on earth and considering Russia is also a, a significant power, I mean, that needs to be talked about more. And then finally, you know, I mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative, which integrates all of these countries together. 
Finally, the, the other element of this that doesn't get that much coverage in the media is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SEO. And this is quickly becoming one of the most important multilateral organizations on earth, certainly in, in terms of influence, becoming one of the most influential organizations. And it includes, I mean, over, uh, over a third of the global population. It includes China, Russia, and it also includes India and Pakistan. India has 1.4 billion people. China has 1.4 billion people. Pakistan has over 200 million people. So just between those three countries, we're talking about 3 billion people. Add in Russia, add in Iran, just became a full member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and add in several other Central Asian nations. We're talking about well over 3, maybe 3.5 billion people. I mean, that's that's over a third. That's nearly half of the global population. And, and it's becoming more influential. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization was founded originally as a kind of security uh, coalition and not in, not in a military sense, not in a military alliance, because obviously India and Pakistan are never going to be jointly working together in a military alliance. I mean, they're historical adversaries. Rather, it was originally focused on, on combating what China calls the three evils. I think they call them the three evils, which is um, separatism, extremism and terrorism. And basically it was founded, you know, this was during the so-called war on terror. And obviously the U.S. war on terror was just a bogus front to carry out, you know, these imperialist wars around the world. But there were very real problems with, you know, extremist groups and terrorism inside Central Asia and South Asia. Of course, the, the Pakistan Taliban, which is different from the Afghan Taliban. Also, terrorist groups in Central Asia in, in Russia, there were the Chechen wars and, and bombings. So the Shanghai Cooperation Organization was really founded as a kind of security group to combat those issues. And it's really evolved a lot over the years. And it's become a political organization. And I mentioned Iran just became a member in 2021. I believe Cuba is an observer, which is pretty interesting. And we've also seen that there's even discussions of turning it into an economic alliance with having trade agreements and, and other and other deals. So while there has been some discussion of the Western economic war in Russia and how it's been pushing the Russian economy to integrate even further with the Chinese economy, I think we need to go even further and talk about the political and military integration in the region. And in recent years, we've also seen multiple military exercises carried out between China, Russia and Iran. The, the three evil boogeymen, right, according to the U.S. government. So all of those things, I mean, these are monumental historic shifts in, in geopolitics. And they're, they're almost never covered in the Western media, even in progressive media. Usually when they're covered, they're covered by like, you know, military times and these kind of military focused websites. So I think, you know, I think the left in particular should be talking more about these things because what we're seeing is, Furthermore, a, the growth, the reemergence of the non-aligned movement, I think we're seeing the creation of these new institutions that are challenging U.S. hegemony. And that is, I mean, that's going to massively shift global politics. And it really, you know, for progressive movements in, in Latin America, for socialist governments, you know, um, in, in Asia, in, in Africa, progressive movements, you know, like in uh, Eritrea and Zimbabwe, Mozambique. I mean, they all are looking very clearly at this as an opportunity for economic agreements, for political support, and just to get a boot off their neck. I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, uh, that the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is going to turn into like this, this new anti-imperialist pact or whatever, but it does provide new political and economic opportunities for countries around the world who are looking for alternatives to the neoliberal hegemonic order led by the U.S. since the 1990s. So thank you for that, Dylan. And I'm going to bring James on here. Let me see. Uh, okay, James, go ahead. Hey, Ben, thanks a lot, man. Uh, thanks for all you do. Yeah, brother. my pleasure. Uh, um, I actually wanted to ask about global salt issues. Um, you know, I mean, Venezuela is huge key for, especially with all the stuff going on in the East. But um, all this new stuff that's been popping up the last week or so in Colombia, 
What's what's your take on it? You think that's just to start more stuff in the South and and you know create more chaos as cover for you know the 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 moves against the East or I mean what's what's your take? Is is it really um, grassroots from the people? I mean, get a shot at knocking down some of the uh, propped up dictatorial systems or. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, we should keep in mind that Colombia has has always been uh, basically an extension of U.S. military power. Hugo Chavez, the Venezuelan revolutionary leader, referred to Colombia as the Israel of Latin America, which, you know, you're talking about Israel earlier. It really shows its status kind of as this, you know, I I mentioned part that Israel is like the 51st state. Well, Colombia is like the 52nd state. It's a very, very integrated politically and militarily into the U.S. The U.S. has troops just permanently who are in Colombia, military bases, and the Colombian military basically is just part, an extension of the U.S. military. And in the first Cold War, Colombia was a major force in resisting, in violently attacking the left. And there, of course, there was and there still kind of is a, a, an armed socialist movement that was originally led by the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. Although uh, five years ago, six years ago now, they demilitarized, they signed a peace agreement with the central government, although the government has actually reneged on that and has continued killing hundreds of signatories of the peace agreement. And every year in Colombia, there are hundreds of peace activists and union organizers killed in in. Last year, there was nearly 100 massacres. So Colombia is part and parcel of the U.S. war machine. We've also seen that in the coup attempts going on against Venezuela, Colombia has played a key role in sending paramilitary groups across the Venezuelan border to carry out cross-border attacks. Brazil has done the same thing. And Colombia was involved in helping to train the, the terrorists that invaded Venezuela as part of Operation Gideon, which was kind of jokingly called the Bay of Piglets. This was two years ago. There was a violent coup attempt, a violent in, uh, a, 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 an invasion, a foiled invasion. And it was actually Venezuelan leftist fishermen who were part of the socialist union who discovered the, the terrorists who were invading Venezuela and told the security forces and they were caught. And Colombia was involved in, in helping to train those forces in camps on the northern Caribbean coast of Colombia. And there are these people involved, like uh, this notorious right-wing extremist supported by the U.S. named Jota Jota Rendon, J.J. Rendon, who was involved in, in helping to train these forces, and Colombia had their hands all over it. And there was a woman who was a, a, um, an assistant who was advising the, the guy Jordan Goudreau, who is the, the U.S. Army veteran, the former Green Beret, who Special Operations Forces officer who was uh, the main guy hired by Juan Guaido's gang and Leopoldo Lopez, the right-wing opposition in Venezuela. He was the U.S. veteran hired to, to, to train these terrorists to carry out the attempted invasion. And Jordan Goudreau, he's, he admitted that Donald Trump gave him support, that he met with Trump officials at uh, Trump's Dural golf course in Florida. And a the the translator and assistant to Jordan Goudreau, who w- was a Venezuelan, I believe her name is Yaxi Alvarez. She admitted after being arrested that the Colombian intelligence services were supporting them as well. So I mean, obviously Colombia they have their dirty hands all over all these things that are happening. But why why has there been this kind of coverage in the past few weeks and months? It's because an election is coming up, and. The Colombian oligarchy is very afraid because a left-wing candidate is leading in all of the polls named Gustavo Petro. And the election is on um, in almost exactly one month. Today is April 28th. It's going to be on, on May 29th is the presidential election. And all of the polling shows that the leftist Gustavo Petro is going to win if it's a free and fair election. So we've seen that the Colombian paramilitary forces and the gangs and, and the narco state and the military are all freaking out. And in fact, the head of the Colombian military just this week, this April, he threatened Gustavo Petro publicly on Twitter, 
I mean, it's incredible. The head of the military threatened the leading presidential candidate. And I want to stress that Gustavo Petro is not even like some, you know, revolutionary communist or whatever. He's he is a leftist. But I mean, he has gone out of his way to constantly criticize Venezuela and Nicaragua and Cuba. I mean, that's that's inevitable, basically, in Colombia, because if you're a politician who supports Venezuela, you're going to be executed. So, I mean, I get why he does it, of course, but he's not like he's not calling for an alliance with Venezuela or something. But the Colombian regime, I mean, it's not a democracy. The last election was stolen by the far right current president, uh, Ivan Duque, who is the disciple politically of the narco leader and former right wing president, Alvaro Uribe. Uribe, everyone knows that he worked closely with the Medellin cartel, one of the, the most powerful drug cartels in the world, and that also there was a far-right death squad involved in assassinating countless people that had its headquarters on his family ranch, on the Uribe family ranch, which is called the Twelve Disciples, excuse me, the Twelve Apostles, at Doce Apostoles, uh, and that death squad has been supported directly by the Uribe family. Well, Uribe handpicked this guy, Ivan Duque, to be president, and then a a drug dealer in Colombia um, named Nene Hernandez. Nene Hernandez stole the election on behalf of Ivan Duque at the orders of Alvaro Uribe by buying drug, excuse me, by buying votes with drug money. So, I mean, Colombia is one of the most cartoonishly corrupt narco regimes on earth, and the right wing, which has controlled that country for decades, is really afraid that a leftist might win the upcoming election in one month from now. So expect a lot of propaganda in the media and expect, you know, the violence and instability in Colombia to pick up as the election comes up soon. All right. Uh, next is a S. I'm going to see if I uh, let me add you here. S, go ahead. Uh, hi, Ben. How you doing? Uh, I kind of have two questions, if you don't mind, but they're both about the global south. And so the first question is, I remember back a couple months ago when I used to follow the Peruvian elections pretty closely because when it was Castillo versus Fujimori. And I remember seeing a lot of leftists being really excited when Castillo won the election. And because he seemed like someone who would who was on the left, I, I don't know if he like considered himself a socialist or anything, but it seemed like he was pretty far to left. But nowadays, it seems like he has completely abandoned his base and has turned to more like a neo neoliberal, more center. And I I wanted to ask like were the were like the signs all there and was this like inevitable and and do you do you know like why this why that is um and like i remember, i also saw like peru also like voted to condemn russia for for the invasion and stuff and they have seemed to be aligning closely with the U, the us and then the second quick question was um i remember seeing a lot of news about U.S. officials visiting Maduro to ask for oil to help ease their burden, and I, and I'm not sure if anything came out of that. Like, did did Venezuela like help out with U.S. with their oil or what? But yeah, those are my questions. Great, two excellent questions. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's it's a pleasure. Um, so I'll start with with Peru. I mean, this is a really good question because it's. I wouldn't say that Pedro Castillo has been has betrayed his base, but he definitely has been a disappointment. And I think there's a few reasons for that. First of all, who is Pedro Castillo? Um, he is a rural teacher who comes from an impoverished rural area with a large indigenous population, and he became well known in. Peru because he led a teacher's strike that, that was very influential across the country. And then what happened is that because he had this kind of popular support and because he led the strike, there was a, a leftist party, actually a, technically a Marxist-Leninist party, that is called Peru Libre, Free Peru. And they decided to recruit him to become part of their party and to run in, in the presidential campaign. 
And Peru has two, they have two round presidential elections. So the first round tends to have a lot of candidates and then it narrows it down to two candidates and then the top two compete in the runoff election. So he surprisingly, because the right wing was so divided in the first round of the election, he ended up getting into the second, this runoff election. And because it was between him and the far right candidate you mentioned, Keiko Fujimori, who is the daughter of the former right wing dictator of Peru, um, she, she ended up, you know, uh, being the representative of the right wing and he ended up being the representative of the left. So that actually forced a lot of people on the left who were kind of softer progressives and liberals. They ended up voting for him because they didn't want Fujimori to come back because they were afraid. I mean, this is, again, the daughter of the former dictator who is f- extremely far right. And there was also meddling by, I mentioned, Leopoldo Lopez, the, the far right Venezuelan oligarch backed by the U.S., who is also a terrorist. I mean, he's carried out numerous violent attacks against the Venezuelan government. He's living as a fugitive right now in Spain, protected by the former colonizer of, of Venezuela. Anyway, Leopoldo Lopez traveled to Peru and he campaigned on behalf of Keiko Fujimori during the campaign. I mean, it was incredible. The, the far right across the region was backing her. And they warned that if Pedro Castillo won, that it would be he would be a so-called Castro Chavista and he would turn Peru into the new Venezuela and all this nonsense. So what happened? He won, but he won a, on a very slim margin and he only won the presidency. He doesn't control any other state structures in Peru. And Peru isn't as much of a, you know, a right wing narco regime like Colombia is. According to the United Nations, over 70 percent of the cocaine in the world comes from Colombia. Peru also actually represents, I don't know the exact number, I believe it's over 10 percent of cocaine. And there has been, you know, a history of of Peruvian um, state security forces involved in organized crime. But Peru also, they, they under Fujimori, uh, senior, they had basically this kind of scorched earth campaign against the left. And it, it was justified as a war against Shining Path, the Communist Party of Peru, which was a an armed Maoist group, which that's a whole very long, complicated story. But I mean, they also killed a lot of other leftists. And But anyway, the, the regime of uh, Fujimori used the existence of the armed struggle by Shining Path to, to launch this this military junta basically they he dissolved congress he declared a dictatorship he suspended civil liberties and he waged this brutal war on the left and of course anyone who was on the left was drawn in even though they weren't involved they weren't involved with shining path in in fact in, in some cases people on the left who were who were targeted by shining path were also targeted by the government so it it was basically a fascist regime that was just trying to liquidate the left exiling leftists, killing leftists, imprisoning leftists. So Peru was never really able, the left was never really able to to recover from that brutal war and the Fujimori regime. Of course, the U.S. government backed all of this 100%. And so Pedro Castillo represents really the kind of first time that Peru has had a, a left-wing leader since, since all of that history. And that's why I think even though he's been in some ways a disappointment, he is still an important historic figure because at the peak of the progressive wave that that there was in Latin America in the early 2000s, you know, you had Hugo Chavez come in 1999, you had Lula da Silva in Brazil, Evo Morales in Bolivia, Rafa Correa in Ecuador, uh, the Kirchners in Nestor and Cristina de Kirchner in Argentina, uh, Fernando Lugo in Uruguay, uh, Manuel Zelaya in Honduras. So, of course, Daniel Ortega in the Sandinista Front in Nicaragua. So the left, you know, was in power in most of Latin America, but two countries that never that never were part of that were were Colombia and Peru. So the fact that it worked in Peru, that that a leftist could come to power is historic and important. And that's the important historical context. Now, the other fact that I mentioned is that he doesn't control any state structures. So as in the U.S., Peru has a presidential system as opposed to a parliamentary system, which means that the president is elected separately from the Congress. And in the Congress, there's 130 seats. And the the government of Pedro Castillo only has 44 seats out of 130. So not only are we saying that he, they don't even have anything, we're close to a, a majority, 
they're in a minority. It's a minority government. The opposition has twice as many seats as them, basically, in the Congress, which means that 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 Pedro Castillo is kind of a lame duck president. He really can't do anything because all he can do is put executive decrees out. But anytime he tries to put legislation in the Congress, it can't get passed. And in fact, he's only been in power for a few months and the Congress has already tried twice to impeach him. And both of the times those impeachments failed. But the reality is that, you know, Pedro Castillo is barely hanging on. And in Peru, there's been five presidents in the past five years. There's been this constant turnover of presidents. In fact, last year, there was a president for like two weeks, and then he was replaced with someone else. Of course, the, all of those presidents were just interchangeable neoliberals who all had the same politics. So, I mean, I think there are valid criticisms of Pedro Castillo. Uh, he he had some political disagreements with, with his party, Peru Libre, and they actually split. So Peru Libre is part of his coalition in the Congress, but they also are no longer affiliated with him. So it's, you know, there's problems there with the division of the left and everything. But the reality is that he's very politically inexperienced and he's dealing with an incredible uphill battle where the entire institution, institutional apparatus of the Peruvian state, which is very anti-democratic. I mean, this is a state that, like, like I said, was inherited by the Fujimori dictatorship, which has very, always been very closely linked to the CIA and in the Pentagon and the U.S. national security state. I mean, it's set up to not allow the left to be able to govern. And he is just barely hanging on. And to be fair, I mean, he has introduced some really good legislation. He also just introduced a measure to try to have a constitutional referendum to create a new constitution. And I mean, who knows where that will go? Like I said, he, he doesn't have a majority in the Congress. So it's it's hard to be very optimistic, honestly. But I mean, the last thing I'll say is that as soon as he came into office, just two weeks after he came in, the military forced his foreign minister to resign. His foreign minister was a very good foreign minister named Hector Bejar. And, and Hector Bejar is a, an old school communist, anti-imperialist. And he wanted Peru to have an anti-imperialist foreign policy. He recognized Venezuela. He ended the, rec ended the recognition of Juan Guaido, this puppet. And Peru also has left the Lima group, which means the Lima group is dead because Lima left the Lima group. The Lima group was this, this institutional framework created by the U.S., even though the U.S. is not a member. Instead, Canada acts on behalf of the U.S. under Christia Freeland. It was an attempt to try to create an alliance in the Americas to try to overthrow the Venezuelan government. And it was based in Peru back when it had a right-wing government. So Peru has left the Lima group. But like I said, after just two weeks, the, the foreign minister, Hector Bejar, was forced out by the military. And he said openly, he said, this is the beginning of a coup. And he said, I, I hope Castillo can survive, but I don't know if he will. So the, the Cancillería, the uh, foreign ministry, was taken over by the military. And ever since then, it's been, you know, you mentioned voting against Russia, voting against Venezuela. So this is this is a lesson. I mean, it's also a lesson, by the way, for Gustavo Petro in Colombia. If, if he can win the election next May in Colombia, if that is to say, if the election is free and fair, he's going to win then I think he'll also have an uphill battle. It, it just shows that, I mean, like, you know, we should, of course, encourage these figures, but at the same time, we have to understand the limits of bourgeois so-called democracy because you can win the election and not be able to govern. And, you know, if Bernie Sanders had won in the U.S., it would have been exactly the same. I mean, even Joe Biden, his, he, has, he is, you know, he, he promised his donors that if, if I win, nothing will fundamentally change, and he was certainly right about that. But, I mean, even if he wanted to do some of the things he said he wanted to do, like the infrastructure bill, he can't even get that stuff passed. And he technically has a slight majority in in Congress, but can't get anything done. Th that's how great bourgeois so-called democracy is in these countries. It's it's institutionally set up by capitalism to prevent the left from being able to govern. Now, to, to answer your other question about Venezuela, I mean... We don't know what came out of those meetings, but what I can tell you is that from listening to speeches given by Maduro after, the Venezuelan government is not dumb. They're not going to give in to this clearly cynical campaign by the U.S. to try to divide 
Russia and Venezuela. Russia and Venezuela are very close allies, not only political allies, they're close military allies. And the Russian military was, in fact, one of the reasons I think the U.S. did not invade Venezuela. There was discussions under Trump of invading Venezuela and doing a naval blockade in addition to the economic blockade and to prevent Iranian, uh, to prevent Iran from sending ships full of, of oil diluents to help Venezuela dilute its heavy crude. Because Venezuela has a lot of oil, but it's heavy crude oil and they can't use that in cars and other vehicles without diluting it with lighter crude or with diluents. And Iran was sending that to Venezuela and the U.S. threatened to have a naval blockade to pr physically prevent the Iranian ships from going to Venezuela. And of course, we know that the, that the Trump administration was also considering invading Venezuela, but Russia sent troops to Venezuela and they did it very publicly. They did not hide it. It was a very public decision. They also sent uh, Russian planes and it was clearly a message to the U.S. saying, if you if you invade Venezuela, we have Russian troops here as a tripwire and you can set off a world war. So, I mean, Venezuela is not dumb. They're, the leadership of the Venezuelan government are, in fact, very smart and very strategic. And they understand what the U.S. is trying to do. Now, my understanding also, again, we don't really know exactly what was discussed in these meetings because they were private. But from what we have, the information we've gotten publicly, allegedly, the U.S. was not even offering t full sanctions relief. I mean, it's just laughable how arrogant this country is. The U.S. decides they want to try to divide Russian Venezuela to get Venezuelan oil because they, they don't want to import Russian oil. So they go to Venezuela and they say, oh, yeah, by the way, we're not going to lift all the sanctions. We, we might lift a few sanctions here or there. But we still are going to leave the majority of the sanctions on and suffocate your economy. So Venezuela is not dumb. They understand what, what's going on here. I personally think what's going to happen is that the, the Biden administration is going to announce partial sanctions relief, not full, but partial sanctions relief. And maybe they worked out some kind of deal to allow some Venezuelan oil to be sold to the U.S., but the majority of the sanctions are going to stay and the U.S. coup attempt against Venezuela is still going to stay. I mean, the U.S. is not in any way going to recognize Maduro and, and, and its coup attempts. It's going to be a frozen conflict like Cuba. The U.S. has had its blockade on Cuba since, the 19, since 1960. And yeah, Obama did normalize relations in 2014, but he never lifted the, the, the blockade. He never lifted the majority of the sanctions. He only lifted some sanctions. So I think it's going to be similar to the Obama normalization with Venezuela. It's going to be this frozen conflict. And Venezuela ideologically is firmly committed with an anti-imperialist foreign policy, and it's never going to break from that. And we should keep in mind that, I mean, you know, capitalism is complicated because even during the first Cold War, the Soviet Union was doing a lot of business with Europe, with capitalist Western Europe, with the U.S. not, not obviously, but with capitalist Western Europe, there were economic relations and they were and the Soviet Union was even building pipelines. So the reality is one thing. The reality of um, a foreign policy of a country is one thing. But when it comes to actual economic interests, these capitalist countries, if they need to import oil from Venezuela and Iran and Russia, they'll do it. So I, I don't I don't think we should be afraid if. Biden announces partial sanctions relief and announces that Venezuela is going to sell some oil. Don't be, we should not be afraid that, that, that Maduro is betraying the revolution or any of that. That's, that's not a, that's not a, that's a, not a mature analysis. Even at the peak of Hugo Chavez, when the U S they, the U S backed a coup against Hugo Chavez, that was briefly successful in April, 2002, even at the peak of the U S attempts to destabilize Hugo Chavez, Venezuela was still exporting its oil to the U S Again, I mean, that's just we're in a global capitalist system and you can have a socialist government, but you're still in a global capitalist system. So uh, thank you, S. Um, I have one other question here, which is written and it's from from Tusker, um, who says, oh, actually, sorry, there's not a question. He would say, I would love to call, but I'm at work. I can only listen. Um, all right. Let me see here. Uh, so. I guess, I don't know if, is Dylan, do you want to ask a question again? Let me see. Or I don't know if you meant to join again or because. 
Oh, wait, wait, my bad. Wait a second. I'm still trying to figure this out here. Sorry, I guess I just kicked you out. Um, well, sorry about that, Dylan. Here we go. It's all good. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Go ahead. All right, cool. Um, yeah, just um, I thought of a question um, after I spoke. Um, just I was I was thinking of stuff that you know you haven't really talked about much that I would love to hear about, and I would love to hear about you comparing um, how it is living in Nicaragua versus how it is living in America, because I find it so fascinating, like um, people going from America to like more of a socialist state, because like I follow certain people um, that, you know, have lived in like America or Canada and now live in like China, um, like, you know, Daniel Dumbrell is one. And I thought um, it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on comparing Nicaragua, life in Nicaragua versus life in America. Because, you know, I mean, I know it's a lot poorer there, but I know, you know, you have stuff like, you know, socialized medicine and, and everything like that. So I would love to see, like, hear the good and the bad of living in both, if you could do that, if that's not too much. <laughs> yeah, great, great question. Thank you for asking that, Dylan. And I, I do have to say that this is going to be my, my last question here, because I do have to run at the... I have an interview at the hour mark here, but uh, in a few minutes, I, I, this is a fun question. Thanks for asking. I mean, uh, it's almost entirely good, frankly. There's very little bad. I'll start with the bad because it's pretty, it's pretty superficial. I mean, one of the few bad things is, uh, I mean, the climate here is amazing. It's one of the good things. So this is a superficial, this, I mean, it's not superficial necessarily, but it's not political, but I mean, Obviously, the climate in Latin America in general is much better, but especially in Central America, it's perfect. I mean, it's like in the 80 degrees, it's like 80 to 80 something all year long, and there's never a winter, which is great because my family's from Ohio, and I used to live in New York, and I mean, I, I'm just so tired of snow in the winter, and I never want to go back to a winter ever again. Um, but one of the downsides, downside is, uh, downsides is, uh, you know, uh, you learn quickly that when you're in a tropical climate, you have to deal with snakes and uh, insects and ticks and uh, um, more snakes and uh, scorpions and uh, insanely large spiders and insanely large ants. And uh, they'll come into your house too. So uh, that's been an interesting experience. But, but other than that, I mean, I don't really have much negative to say. I mean, I guess one of the other negative things is that, look, I mean, if you're in a, in a, in a country in the global south that is under sanctions, as Nicaragua is by the U.S., you also realize that you that there are some economic luxuries in the United States and the capitalist core, imperial core, that you don't have in other countries. And, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of poverty and a lot of difficulties in the United States and Western Europe in these capitalist countries. But at the same time, I mean, there is a lot of relative ease in life. So, for instance, if you want to get something, you can go on to Amazon and you can just buy it and it'll be at your house within 48 hours, which is, I mean, incredibly easy. In a lot of countries, that's not possible at all. So you have to, like, go find stuff. And if it's a country under sanctions, I mean, that makes it sometimes more difficult to import certain goods. So there's a lot of things that you can't get that are harder to find. And fortunately, I mean, with Chinese technology, that's making it a little easier to find substitutes. So, I mean, for instance, Huawei is extremely popular across Latin America, not just in Nicaragua, but even in, you know, I mentioned the right-wing regimes like Colombia. Huawei is still very popular. Um, and there's other technologies, but there's also a lot of stuff that's just hard to get. So that's one of the, that's really one of the only downsides. But I mean, there's so many positive things and I really encourage people living in the Imperial Corps to at least to travel. I mean, obviously we need people in the Corps organizing and struggling and trying to fight against capitalism and racism and police brutality and all of those things. But at the same time, I mean, people really need to travel because you really see how different life is. You really see what it is like to live in a country where the government actually cares for people and actually wants to help poor and working people. And, you know, I was raised, born and raised in the United States. 
And you get used to this idea. And, and I think it explains why so many people on the left who recognize that capitalism is a failure, who recognize the, the barbarism of systemic racism and imperialist wars and all of that, a lot of them tend in, in the imperial core, they tend to kind of move toward like a kind of anarchisty, libertarian, socialist ideology. And, and that's because they can't imagine living in a society in which the state actually is a force to help working people. And when you go to Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua, I mean, I've unfortunately never had the chance to go to China or Vietnam or Laos or, you know, many other countries. And I would love to go someday. I hope to go soon. But I mean, I've been to all of the evil, so-called evil countries that with socialist governments in Latin America, also Bolivia. And you see, I mean, how incredible it is to have a government that, yes, I mean, it, it's not perfect, but it is doing what it can to help oppressed and poor and working people and to try to provide resources and empower them and give them opportunities. And what's incredible, you also realize is that the state is uh, in many cases, not even the most powerful institution. I mean, it's up against in Venezuela, for instance, there is a very vicious capitalist class in Venezuela that the state has never been able to totally defeat, right? And it's been again, it had been kind of against in a war against this capitalist class, and they've been able to defeat elements of it. But you realize that the state is not actually this so-called authoritarian apparatus. It's the opposite. In, in many ways, a lot of people want the state to be even stronger because the state is helping with a lot of things with healthcare and education and all of those and very important programs. But it actually doesn't have the same economic power as some of the capitalist oligarchs. So, I mean, I think that's really eye opening. And I think people really need to see what it's like to be in a country where the state is not at war with you. And also it, to, to be able to meet so many people for whom revolutionary politics is completely normal. I mean, I've met so many young people who are, you know, teenagers who are, who love TikTok and Instagram and K-pop. K-pop is, you also learn is very popular across Latin America. And it's so funny because there'll be like this 16 year old who loves K-pop and Instagram and TikTok. And then we'll also be like, uh, death to us imperialism. Capitalism is a murderous system. I mean, it's really funny. There's this kind of, uh, normalization of revolutionary politics because people, they, they understand intimately what it, what, what capitalism has done around the world, what imperialism has done, what white supremacy has done. And I mean, the fact is that when you're in the U S there is this idea that makes you, if you're on the left, people want the, the ruling class, the state, the corporate media, they want you to feel like you're fringe. They want you to feel like you're just a loony, crazy person. But then you go to countries where, you know, this revolutionary politics is very normalized and is has widespread mainstream support. And, you know, you realize that it's actually the U.S. that doesn't represent the majority. It's the U.S. that is in the fringe. And it's U.S. political culture, which is so insular and closed-minded, even though the U.S. is a very diverse country, in terms of immigration and all those things, I mean, those are good. That's one of the very few good things about the U.S. It's a very diverse country with a lot of people from around the world. But the political culture in the U.S. is so narrow and closed-minded. And when you get out of that, you realize that, I mean, America-centrism, Eurocentrism, it really permeates every single mainstream politician. And they they really don't see the rest of the world as independent. Uh, and and when you start thinking about that and the fact that the U.S. and Western Europe and Canada only represent 15 percent of the global population, it's, it's actually very liberating. So I, I highly invite people to travel, even if you don't move, just to travel. And uh, honestly, it's not even that difficult in some cases. Obviously, the U.S. has made it very difficult to go to Cuba. But if you have if you have a U.S. or a European passport, you can go to Nicaragua and get a tourist visa at the airport it, 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 at customs. Obviously, with Venezuela now, it's much more difficult. But, you know, I would I would highly recommend these things because I think they really are. They really do uh, have a positive impact on people. So I know I said that was my last question, but 
really briefly, I do have to run to, to do another interview here, but really briefly, I'll just take this question from Johnny and, and I'll keep my answer short. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, are you familiar with modern monetary theory? Yeah, I am. Yeah, so it's a, it plays a big role in our understanding of fiscal policy and what we as a nation can do. I think uh, i got to ask you, what are your thoughts about the actual number of people that do not believe that neoliberal, or rather, how do I put this, that are not neoliberal and that are more charterless, more like what you were talking about, that the state has a role to play for the well-being and health of the uh, of, uh, of its people. What do you think that number is? Do you think it's half and half? What do you think? Uh, where? In the U.S., you mean? In, in the U.S., yeah, in the United States. All right, States. cool. All right, cool. Thanks, Johnny. Um, yeah. All right. So I'll, I'm just going to answer briefly here and then I'm going to have to go, unfortunately. But um, good question. I mean, I'll say that I've done many interviews with Michael Hudson. I mean, he's been a very influential figure on me as someone I would never call myself an economic expert. But just from reading his books and reading, you know, Steve Keen and others, um, I don't I, I would I would say that I'm not always in agreement with modern monetary theory. But I think that what I mean, basically, the, the cornerstone of their argument is objectively true, which is that, I mean, the idea that the U.S. has to have a balanced budget is absurd because when the U.S. wages a war, all it does is just print money. And you see with quantitative easing, basically, I mean, the, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury are basically just collaborating with these large corporations to just create new money, which is not even physical money. It's just just. Uh, you know, on in computers, it doesn't even exist tangibly. So, I mean, uh, the MMT theorists are right in the sense that, you know, if the U.S. wants to have universal health care and it wants to have higher education free for everyone, then they can just do it and they don't even need to worry about a balanced budget. They can just fund it. But it, and that's true. But at the same time, I think that really only works because the dollar is the global reserve currency. So, I mean, this is a whole long conversation, and I've actually talked about this with Michael Hudson, and he does agree. I mean, he's the expert. I mean, he's one of the most brilliant economists ever, and I would recommend reading his book, Super Imperialism, to understand exactly how, I mean, the the U.S. dollar became the global reserve currency, especially after the Bretton Woods Conference in 1945, and then after Richard Nixon took the dollar off of gold in 1971, and how it remained the global reserve currency. So... I mean, they're right about that, and they're right that that countries around the world, governments around the world, they do practice modern monetary theory. So, um, you know, I think they're right about that, but we also need to, I think it's not sufficient. I think uh, it, we do need to have the MMT understanding, but I think it needs to be accompanied by an anti-imperialist framework, because what concerns me is that some people who are kind of more social democratic and progressive, but not anti-imperialist, they, they, are, they support MMT, but they don't realize that just having MMT in the U.S. doesn't solve the problem if it's just built on the backs of people in the global south, right? So I think that, that combining MMT with an anti-imperialist analysis like Michael Hudson does, I think, is, is, is what goes beyond the necessary to being sufficient, right? So MMT alone is, not, is necessary but not sufficient. MMT plus anti-imperialist, anti-imperialism is, is what's needed. And to, to answer your question, I mean, about the U.S., I don't know a certain percentage, but I think most people recognize that the government could do these things that we're talking about. It could provide education, it could provide health care, and that it chooses not to. Obviously, I mean, I don't know a percentage of it. There are people, you know, I, I, know, I know family members who believe this idea that the the U.S. government just just gives all this money to poor people who are supposedly lazy and on welfare, even though uh, Bill Clinton destroyed welfare, campaigning on the slogan, end welfare as we know it. <laughs> so, I mean, th- that's a ridiculous narrative. And there are these budget hawks who claim the U.S. government has to balance its budget, although we, we see that no one actually believes that, which is why, I mean, even under Donald Trump, Republican, the, the budget, uh, the excuse me, the um, debt skyrocketed. So no one actually believes it, even though they'll, they'll cynically talk about why we need to balance the budget in order to cut social spending while they keep increasing military spending. But I think a lot of average, you know, working people, they understand kind of instinctively 
they don't even need to have, you know, an, an economics education. They understand that that neoliberalism, the system we've seen since Ronald Reagan, has been a failure. That wages since the ninth since nineteen seventy six, real wages in the U.S. have been stagnant or declining since nineteen seventy six. And even though in the past few years there have been some slight increases in wages, they're not keeping up with inflation. So that means that that the power, the purchasing power of workers has been decreasing and decreasing since the 1970s, since the emergence of neoliberalism. The the rate of people who have unions has been decreasing. And it's good to see. I mean, Amazon finally has they had a union breakthrough and, and we've seen a growth in unionization. But I, I think that that consciousness is kind of really deep seated and a lot of people kind of get it. But, you know, there's just so much propaganda and the corporate media just keeps regurgitating this idea of the of the the debt. We need to you know, we need to worry about the debt, even though the debt is denominated in U.S. dollars. So what does it mean to be to have your own debt held in your own currency? That's the the MMT people can point out clearly that that's not a big issue. The issue is if you have a foreign debt or rather a debt denominated in a foreign currency. So Honduras is trapped in billions of dollars of debt that are denominated in U.S. dollars, and Honduras can't print U.S. dollars to pay off that debt. That's a very different situation, which is why I said we have to keep in mind, we have to complement the MMT analysis with the anti-imperialist analysis. So th- thanks for that question, Johnny. I want to thank everyone for joining me here. It was a fun discussion, and I'm going to do this every week. So uh, every week, I'll if you follow me on Twitter... I'll uh, post a link and you can find it here and I'll take questions probably for about an hour like today. And yeah, thanks to everyone. It was fun and I'll see you next time here at Colin.